So planning, behavior, and choices, all of which can be inspired by hope in the future, is one way that people are very different from animals. Animals pretty much live for the present. But humans are able to make choices and decisions and plans based upon the future. <clears throat> Last year was one such event for me. I was given the gift of Super Bowl tickets to watch my beloved Buccaneers in their own stadium. I think they won that game, didn't they? I can't remember. I was so excited. It was like two weeks before the game. And, and when I found out I had these tickets, I started preparing for the game two weeks beforehand to ensure, right, I wanted to make sure that I got the most out of the opportunity. Immediately, I began planning my outfit. Okay, outfits, okay? I had to have the right jersey, jerseys, hats, rain gear, because it... At one point, there was a 30% chance of rain. I had to get the right Buccaneer rain gear. I had to have a Bucks mask because masks were required in the stadium at all times. And with strict security and all the COVID rules inside, I was going to take no chances. And I had this nightmare, like a recurring nightmare leading up to the game, that I was going up with my ticket to get in, and they denied me because I had the wrong backpack. Like I looked like a terrorist or something. So I had to make sure that I had the right backpack that was the right size, and it had to be clear. And then I started planning my schedule for the day for weeks leading up to it. I started thinking through what's going to happen. Do I leave from church? Do I go home first? I mean, there's lots of things to consider when you're going to this game. I was Googling, watching, listening to all things Super Bowl for two weeks. I could not get enough of the Super Bowl. Knowing that I was going to be there in person was driving me to make these choices. My mind was focused. And nothing would derail or distract me from my preparations to be at the game. I would be ready. Can you relate to excitement about something in your future so real that it drove you to change for a while your daily routine? Maybe it was like losing weight for a wedding you were going to be in or planning for a big vacation that you were about to take. Or maybe, maybe it was just this imminent stressful event on the horizon, a court date, a performance review, some sort of test, or maybe it was a medical procedure. Are there, in fact, right now in your life, any pending future events impacting your behavior or your decisions and your priorities as we speak? what we're talking about today as we look through the passage. You can click it together for me. It's not working for me. All right. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, and I put this in bold, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who has called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on his name as Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So let's look at the historical part of this passage. Let me just see that clicker. I'm just going to use this one. Yours is better. So I've entitled this section, and by the way, we... 
divide each passage of scripture up in three applications. History is what about man? What did he do and why and how did he do it? And the historical aspect, I've been called this loving command. I want to start off with this word, therefore, that this whole passage that we're studying today begins. After describing for several verses their brilliant faith, their great salvation, Peter flows into what I call a therefore imperative. It is a therefore that is followed by a command, an imperative, if you will. He moves from this onto this kind of what I would call the personal section in our sermons, if you will. So that's what it is. And Paul had a very similar therefore passage in Romans. I'm just going to read just to get an idea of what I mean. Romans 12, uh, 1 and 2, the first part of verse 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Actually, in Greek, you could translate it, which is the least you can do. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, Paul has a therefore followed by a command. And that's what we have. But there's a difference here. See, Paul's therefore imperative comes after a much more detailed, like 11 chapter description of faith and salvation. And Paul's therefore imperative was much more negative. It was kind of a rebuke. And I'm gonna show you basically a summary of this therefore, and really it's a summary of all of Paul's epistles in two sentences, you ready? And I stole this from someone else. This is brilliant. Here is a summary of, if you want to know what Paul writes, here it is. We are heirs to an unthinkable, stunning grace to incredible future glory. Therefore, I am, as a personal favor, begging you sick little freaks to act normal for five minutes. That's basically a summary of all of Paul's epistles right there. I wish I'd come up with that myself, but isn't that great? See, Peter's therefore imperative is much more positive than this. It's a command for them to continue in the faithfulness they have displayed. So his, therefore, is more warm, more friendly, more affirming. And I have this idea that I've seen through this passage called confident hope. It's not Peter wagging a finger, scolding them to be holy. He gives a clear, unambiguous prescription of how to be holy. And here it is. He says, set your hope. Set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, set your hope on what you will see when Jesus returns. Set your hope. The Greek word for set your hope is fascinating. This set your hope is one word, and it's elpisate. It's an aorist. I'll explain this in a little bit, but it's just trust me. Aorist means past. Active means it's happening now. Imperative means command. Aorist, active, imperative, and it's in the second person saying, you guys, plural, all of you. It's a command to continue what has already started in the past and is presently continuing. Peter is saying, what you're doing, you're doing well. What you started doing in the past and what you're doing now, you should keep doing. To give you a really good, accurate definition of this word with all of its parts of speech, understood. It's a command you continue waiting for their salvation with unfettered, unhindered joy and full confidence. Remember, these are people who are having their, their family and their children and their spouses and their neighbors and their friends murdered by Nero and his troops because they are being persecuted for being children of God. And he says, you've been incredible, you've been faithful, you've been having your eyes on salvation, but I want you to continue as you have in the past and you are now to fix your hope on that day. 
He commands them to continue fixing their hope on that day when they see Jesus face to face so that they will, in fixing their hope, remain holy. They will need to continue keeping their hope fixed on this great salvation, which we described in detail last week. If you've not heard it, you should go back and listen to that one so that you understand how great this salvation is. But Peter also says, listen, don't go back. He's commanding them to continue their trajectory away from their old life toward their current one. He reminds them of how their former life was incongruent with their new hope that they are eagerly waiting for. That former life that he's talking about was filled with pagan rituals, marked by massive immorality, self-mutilation, and all sorts of debauchery. <clears throat> Outside of the rituals, it was a life that was focused on earthly fulfillment, success, embracing the hedonistic morality of Roman culture. Paul commands them, do not allow the allure of this past former life to distract you from the hope of salvation that is to come. Keep your hope fixed on the day of salvation. Look around you. Don't go back to living like that. Continue this process of transformation where you are becoming more and more like Jesus every day because this incredible faith and this great salvation, because of all that, you owe it to God to live with inspiring hope for your future. That's the history of the passage. Now we look at the next application of our passage. It's the spiritual, which means what about God? What did he do and why and how did God do that? I've entitled this section Defining Holiness. Just like with the word joy, many don't really understand what holiness even is. Remember we talked about a lot of people think joy is this emotion, smiling and laughing. And I said, no, joy can happen when you're bawling, when you're crying, when you're heartbroken, when you're crushed. Joy is what? It is the supernatural satisfaction with the presence of God over anything else. That is joy. And that can happen in any emotion. We have the same problem with the word holiness. <clears throat> Many people don't really know what holiness means. What comes to your mind when you hear the word holiness? What do you think when you hear the command that you are to be holy from Scripture? What does holiness mean? How do you know if you are holy? And if you aren't, how do you become holy? Don't we all want to be that to some degree? Maybe you think holiness is like Mother Teresa. This vow of poverty, helping the poor people constantly. Maybe you think it's like some group of field-tilling monks chanting in perfect unison in a big cathedral. Maybe it's someone who never cusses on US 41. I don't know. <laughs> but you know, in reality, holiness, <clears throat> holiness can be quite intimidating. Dare I say, sometimes if we have the wrong definition, holiness is very unenticing. It's a turnoff. It is anyway, if we don't really understand it. And for people who are enslaved in a religion which requires human righteousness or human holiness, holiness is quite a depressing proposition because we never really get there. As a matter of fact, every other world religion makes personal holiness a requirement for salvation, a prerequisite for having any type of eternal hope. If you're holy, then you can hope for something better. If you're holy, then you might get salvation. Those religions require the human attainment of holiness. And you can only have 
hope to be saved if you fulfill whatever the checklist of holiness is that those religions tell you. That's why holiness can be depressing. Because on its own, the abstract kind of, of, of connotative definition we've given to holiness, which is you don't do anything wrong, well, that kind of sucks. Because I do stuff wrong all the time. But what if it were possible to have fun with holiness? Pastor Joe, how dare you? Look at the command that Paul or that Peter quotes in this passage. It's from Leviticus of all books. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves therefore and be holy, for I am holy. Peter's command to be holy is a quote from Leviticus. Like, that's the least impressive book you want to read if you're afraid of holiness. But somehow these Gentiles had become so familiar with the book of Leviticus, they would recognize this quote. Wow. Why, though? What could possibly have inspired these Gentile former pagans who are now children of God being persecuted for the faith? What could have possibly inspired them to not only endure persecution, but also study Leviticus? <laughs> have you ever studied Leviticus? Like, maybe you've tried to start it. I'm going to study Leviticus. And you get through, like, chapter 1. Ah, forget it. I'm going to Psalms. Have you ever read it? Does anyone ever read it for fun? Today's Saturday. I'm doing Leviticus, dog. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> why would ever, anyone ever want to read Leviticus? I'll tell you why. Hope. These precious saints didn't study Leviticus so they could learn how to be holy. Their future hope of salvation inspired them to study what holiness looked like because they realized God was taking them to that place. And they were anticipating it. They wanted to know more about it. Our tendency when we read this passage and other passages like it that command us to be holy is that we go right to the command to be holy. Don't make that mistake. You see, holiness isn't actually the subject of this and it really is a run-on sentence, and it goes on for verses after our passage today. It's one long sentence. But holiness really isn't the topic. Holiness is the object of the subject of the sentence, which is hope. Because what we know is this, that hope always comes before holiness. That same book of Leviticus, the one that seems to be so boring and like, maybe even intimidating because all it is about holy, holy, look at this verse in Leviticus, which by the way, these precious saints would have read and known. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Sanctified is a synonym for being made. I am the Lord who makes you holy. I make you holy. You see, in their familiarity with Leviticus, they would have also known this verse was there. And this gives a whole new twist to the idea of holiness, doesn't it? That it's not about human effort, but it's about God who makes us holy, God who sanctifies us, sets us apart. Leviticus isn't an intimidating list of rules, an arduous to-do list for Christians to fulfill to get God's blessing. It's a description of what Christ has and is doing in his children. This is the difference between Christianity and all other world religions. Holiness comes second. Hope comes first. Holiness isn't a prerequisite, some arduous religious task. 
Holiness is a fruit which identifies us as God's people. It's not a list of do's and don'ts. It is a natural condition of those who have, in fact, fixed their hope on the day of salvation. They have learned how holiness is the result of their hope, not a requirement or a prerequisite of it. Holiness isn't what saves us. Holiness isn't what perfects us. We are becoming holy because he has perfected, perfected us through Christ. Holiness is the continuing disconnect for a believer from sin toward righteousness. Holiness never comes first. God through his spirit and his word and his people. And by the way, if you're a child of God and you're neglecting gathering together with his people, it's really going to be hard for you to be holy. Because God uses all three, his spirit, his word, and his people. He uses those to transform us. Sometimes he transforms us in some areas really quickly. Sometimes it's much more slowly. But either way, it's an undeniable direction toward the likeness of Jesus. And then what begins to happen with holiness, here it is, you ready? We begin to fall out of love with those dying hopes that we talked about in week one of this series. We grow to despise our sinfulness, which seems to distract us from fixing our hope on the day of salvation. And what's the purpose of this process? Why does God bother? Because he wants us to be, like I was trying to be for the Super Bowl, fully prepared for the incredible joy of the day of salvation. Holiness is a sign. Holiness is a symptom indicating where our true hope is fixed. It is an indication we are anticipating and looking forward to something greater than this life. Okay, personal section is what about us and what do we do and why and how do we do it when we consider these first two applications, the history and the spiritual. Now, don't judge me. I've created a word. Hopeliness. Oh, yeah. Here's with my Sunday sermon preview this week. Hope plus holiness equals hopeliness. And I wasn't really sure if I should post this. So I did the little scratching of the thing, you know, and I, I wasn't sure. But I decided, you know what, I'm going to go with it. When it comes to life beyond this earth, most of the world around you is living in hopelessness. But we don't have to live that way. We can live in what I call Hopeliness. Now, don't judge me. I know it's a new word. And it, I, but I'm not sure if I'm going to stick with it, so I haven't added it to my dictionary on spell check yet. I may do that later. But it's hopeliness. Don't judge. But I really think the idea is that we want to be hopely. Not just holy. Because holiness comes second. It's hope that comes first. So let's be Hopely. And when we are hopely, we realize that we begin to become freed from our past. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 11. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified, a synonym for being made holy. Same word. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Like these precious saints that Peter is writing to, we all have this former ignorance that used to be our hope. 
that former idea that dominated our thoughts and our process and our planning and our thinking. Before this great faith and this great salvation, all we had, just like everyone else around us, was dying hope. And our priorities, our choices, and our values all reflected it. We lived in ignorance of the true living hope of Jesus. We had no concept of it. But now, now, if you're a child of God, we do. But when our hope for the return of Jesus becomes unfixed, if you will, when we start to drift away, you know what happens? Whenever our hope begins to become feeble, that's when holiness begins to wane. <clears throat> we naturally fill that cavity with other dying hopes. And those dying hopes start to create behavior and choices that can only serve life here on earth. That's what life without holiness is, guys. It's a life of emptiness seeking to be fulfilled with dying hopes. It's a life spent seeking, and I <clears throat> borrowed this idea. <clears throat> it's a life spent seeking hope through pleasure or achievement, but never finding any purpose. And this is the part I borrowed. It's from Augustine. It's a life hoping for pleasure, beauty, and truth in something other than Jesus. See, once faith liberates us from the prison of dying hopes, our core values, our daily choices, our plans naturally change. The thought of being what you were before begins to be repulsive, <clears throat> begins to be unattractive. And with a clear mind, you can see that living like that is actually hopeless. But let's talk about what holiness really will look like. <clears throat> Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, I love it. Being transformed to the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. As Paul describes, holiness is a life of spiritual progression from one level of sanctification or holiness to another. This is the logical, natural result of this great faith, this great salvation. This, the fruit is holiness when our hope is fixed on eternity. A life with hope fixed on Jesus is inspiring us to loosen our grip on the dying hopes of the world. We live as people inspired to be fully serving, working, and engaged in the world, but at the same time that we are engaged, we are not soiled by it. You might struggle occasionally with dying hopes here and there. We get it. But overall, those things are pesky distractions, spiritual mosquitoes you want to slap off of you and get away from. In Florida, we can relate to that. People in Minnesota may not understand that illustration as good. With hope, our lives take a different direction and a different purpose as we anticipate and prepare for that great day of salvation that we are fixed on. You adopt values congruent to an eternal hope. In fact, holiness begins to make you homesick for that day. And when we have a life of holiness, here's what holiness is actually saying. I'm going to put a quote up here from one of the greatest preachers of all time, Spurgeon, says, while these men, he's talking about these people in 1 Peter, while these men looked for the coming of Christ, they looked for it with no idea of dread, but on the contrary, with the utmost joy. 
when your hope is fixed on the day of salvation, to the degree that it produces this holiness, you are saying, in fact, God, I trust you. Holiness is an expression of confidence in God's promises. And it's also a sense of gratitude for the work that Jesus Christ has done for us on the cross. You are communicating by action that you believe the joy of salvation is far greater than any of the pleasures of this world. You are saying that you know for a fact that God keeps his covenant promises. And that he is worthy of your loyalty. He is worthy of your devotion. You are demonstrating you trust God enough to keep his promises, enough to turn your back on dying hopes and point toward living hope, the return of Jesus. You are saying, by holiness, God, no matter what, because of this great hope that I'm fixed on, no matter how enticing this life may be, I wouldn't trade any of it for knowing you at any time. I'd rather have you. Question, would you like to know today if your hope is fixed properly? Would you like to know if the process of holiness, this progression that Paul talks about, is alive and well in your life? Well, it's frankly, a very simple test. And it's not a checklist of self-righteous religious achievement or piety. However, it is a test that may force some of you to be very uncomfortable as you engage in introspection. Here's the test. How much would Christ return right now disappoint you? Would you be okay if today was the day of salvation? Trading any remaining earthly hopes you might have for your family, for yourself, for your uh, professional life, for your children. Would you trade all of those earthly hopes for the day of salvation? Look, I'm not saying you can't love life. We certainly can and we do. But do you love life so much you'd rather Christ return when you're on your deathbed than now? Where's your hope fixed? Which one do you want more today? Do the values and priorities of your life reflect a soul who's ready for the day of salvation? Because that's what holiness is. It's a light that says, what's coming is a lot better than what's here, and I'm working toward that. Heavenly Father, there are so many things that are distracting us. So many things that are trying to entice us to unfix our hope. Lord, in the silence of this room, before we begin another busy week, we pray that in our hearts that you would call us to that important spiritual anchor, that mooring that allows us to know, okay, my hope is now once again fixed on the day of salvation. 
Jesus, we ask you that you would give us the peace of mind to know that we can trust your promise that the life to come is far greater than the life we have. And yes, we live our life here on earth. And yes, we're working and we're raising our kids and we're running our businesses and we're serving in our churches and we're doing all those things. But in the end, Father, we would trade all of them right now at this moment if you just said, okay, now's the time. Today's the day. Lord, make us so filled with anticipation for that day that anything else around us becomes secondary so we can begin to live in hopeliness. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys for being here. We love you. I'm praying for you guys this week. Pray for me that we can become more hopely. Amen? Amen. Have a great week. Thank mm-hmm. you.